Hey guys, today I'm joined by our ringleader of Nori Powerlifting, Sean Noriega, and I'm super excited to, to have the opportunity to talk to him today um, and share kind of like his background with you guys, because Sean has appeared in uh, multiple podcasts. Uh, for, for those of you guys that don't know, Sean's a, a you know formerly number two ranked USAPL lifter. I don't know what the rankings kind of stand with all the weight class shifts now, but Sean was also number three in, in uh, Worlds. So he's, he's definitely an accomplished uh, powerlifter who's you know a, a great, phenomenal coach who's been able to... To kind of build up his brand now and, and you know have set up this thing of nori powerlifting where giving me the opportunity to kind of interview him and talk to him for you guys so you know with, with sean uh, we we wanted to go over today a lot more about his background his development and just kind of how he developed his career in the sport and became such an accomplished powerlifter and not kind of focus as much on the technical programming side today because i'm sure you guys if you look some up you'll find plenty of podcasts where sean has had the opportunity to cover those things with you guys so with that being said, um, you know, thanks for joining me today, Sean. Um, you know, first off, I kind of want to start the conversation about, you know, you're a New Yorker. I'm a Texan. Uh, what was that like? Uh, you know, how did you like your New York experience? What was your childhood like? I mean, I feel like for the most part, assuming you have, first of all, Michael, thank you for uh, for introducing me and, and having me on here. You know, I'm, I'm very thankful that uh, you've you've done your research and you take pride in doing your research when it comes to podcasting, because you know, I've, I very much enjoy being on podcasts, but I definitely have been on a few where uh, it, it gets kind of repetitive and it's usually mm -hmm. about the, you know, the dry sort of programming technique, whatever stuff, which obviously is, is you know, where I make my money and a, a big part of my life, but not always my favorite topic to discuss, you know, ad nauseum. Um, but I feel like most people, to get back to your question, I feel like most people who had like a positive uh, upbringing would have just like a, well, it's home. This is, this was mm -hmm. how I was brought up kind of feel. Um, so my childhood was, you know, and my experience growing up in New York was, you know, overwhelmingly positive experience. I feel like I had like a very kind of like, um, almost like old fashioned, I guess, American kind of upbringing like you know you go to your you're four years old and you go to mm -hmm. your t-ball uh you know practices and games and all of your friends are there and then you see those same friends minus a few over at soccer um you know and you know parents host parties after the games and uh school is you know your field days and all that sort yeah. of stuff so i feel like i have like a very very pleasant uh, memory of of my childhood. Um, you know, I grew up in a suburban part of New York. I grew up in Long Island, so I was not in the city. Um, so like I said, like this experience of, you know, going over to friends' houses for for play dates and playing sports at, you know, local parks and stuff like that was a super, you know, enjoyable part of my life. Um, I have a younger brother who's two years younger than me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, growing up, we spent, I would say, spent you know a lot of our time when we were in the house together yeah. um personality wise i think we we differed a bit in that i was much more uh athletically inclined than he was so most of my childhood i spent playing sports and just being outside and like i said for the duration of time that i was you know inside and home uh i would spend with him whether that was just playing with toys or playing video mm -hmm. games or whatever it might have been um 
you know, but with, with that, I have a question there. So, yeah. you know, I, I, for some reason, I always thought your brother was older. I don't know why uh, that, that came to oh, me. Really? Yeah. Cause I think before <laughs> uh, you had shared with me a little bit about your family and, and I just, for some reason, assumed that, but uh, with, with that being said, I know, you know, you got exposed to these different sports uh, early on, especially mm-hmm. as a kid. And I know that's something kind of chance similarly had an experience as well. Uh, when you were growing up, were both of your parents very adamant about, Hey, like we want you guys to try these different things, try different sports. Sports. And then where did the shift or divide come between you and your brother where he was kind of like, eh, I don't really like all the athletic stuff as much. Like, how was that? Yeah. So uh, my parents have always been pretty like uh, laissez faire, I guess would be a way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never any, you know, serious push to do really anything. Um, I think like the core, the core tenants of my upbringing were to like prioritize like, you know, uh, health, education, uh, those sort of things. But in terms of like particular um, outlets, you know, there was never any personal bias or like living vicariously through oh. your kids to put into whatever. I think that it was just kind of the cultural norm around where I grew up. So like a lot of, you know, the people around me just demographically, it's like, you know, kind of like the old fashioned, like Italian, you know, uh, types of people where, you know, you put your, you put your boys in, in baseball, you put your boys in soccer, like, you oh. know, it's the, it's the, it's the manly thing to do to play sports. And when you're a kid, these are the sports you play. So, um, you know, I got enrolled in, in sports pretty early on. And so did my brother Dean. Um, and you know, at an early age, just in terms of maybe, you know, natural capabilities, I was just more athletic, uh, Mm. and just kind of pick things up a bit more quickly than he did. Um, but I think definitely like a confounding variable as well that led to that that shift was also that uh, my brother was definitely like pretty sick as a kid. Um, so my brother has like a ton of different food allergies that as an adult now has since learned to manage and, you know, uh, mitigate risk and all that sort of stuff lives a completely normal life. Uh, but as a kid, when one you're as parents, you're not fully aware of what allergies your kid has and the magnitude at which it affects them makes a lot of things difficult when you're, you know, breaking out in hives or having whatever issues and you don't really know what's causing it. So he was very sick as a kid also would get pneumonia, ear infections, just his immune system was pretty weak um, as a kid. So I would imagine that a big part of not being inclined to be social and be out playing sports was that if you're always sick and you just feel awful and you don't know why you probably want to stay home more often than not so i'm sure there was just kind of like a a predisposition or or natural capability that led to me being pushed more towards sports versus my brother but then also that is is definitely a big uh a big piece of it as well i see so before we kind of get into like your experience (laughs) in baseball would you say that you know that's kind of where personality wise you know you might have had more opportunities to become what and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i would see you as more of an extroverted or uh prone to extroversion um and being able to talk with all these kids have fun playing with them going through those play dates versus maybe your brother uh, not being like reclusive per se but being a little bit more reserved uh in, in comparison would you say that that kind of split happened as well oh absolutely you know i i feel i definitely um you know felt felt bad for for my brother when we were growing up because you know either he was sick missing school sick sometimes in the hospital mm-hmm. uh there are also a lot of like events in school like when you have you know uh, ice cream or pizza parties and all this sort of stuff that he just flat out had to be excluded from and yeah. because of how allergic he was to these things 
he would be excluded physically in a pretty severe way where it's like you literally have to like self-isolate mm -hmm. right so so growing up in many different areas he was having to self-isolate and and i give him a lot of credit because this is something that he really uh you know overcame as he became a young adult because navigating you know that that uh difficult you know, pathway to like overcome those things yeah yeah being having to you know kind of be on your own or feel like you have to be on your own all throughout growing up obviously led to a lot of you know difficulties in in middle school and high school where obviously socialization is like a huge you know part of your day-to-day -day. um and now i mean he's he's really become an extrovert like just flat mm. out is completely extroverted after having gone through all of development as a very very introverted person and probably at times you know pretty antisocial which is a very difficult thing to do because usually when when kids you know go through all of development a certain way it's you come out on the other side a certain way and that wasn't yeah. the case for him so um you know i was i was i'm just very proud of him very happy to see that that's the case um because obviously like i said you know i didn't have to deal with any of those issues um on the athletic side i think everyone can relate like when you play sports it just it just makes socializing and making friends a lot easier mm -hmm. um because you don't necessarily have to um you know go out of your way to meet people you don't have to uh it's kind of set up for you and, and exactly. collaboration is almost like uh, encouraged because of especially a lot of the sports you play being team sports you know you <laughs> have to communicate you know work with your teammates etc and you know i think i think that's a side of you that a lot of people haven't heard about or seen and i think part of maybe your brother's development is also attributed to you know having an older brother who was empathetic and you know supportive maybe there were times i'm sure you might have uh, teased them or bullied him a little bit had your brotherly arguments but i feel like even just hearing the way you're talking about him and, and that development it seems like you know you and your family were supportive and and you know knew understood that this is a difficult thing he had to go through but at the same time it teaches you as that older brother some of those characteristics that that an older brother should have ideally rather than you know the I, I feel like when you watch those movies there's always like the the main character who's like the son who's kind of the um outcast he's like the the, the black sheep of the family and then there's like the brother who comes to the holiday parties he's the good looking one the one with the beautiful wife the one who seems successful and then you know like in your family that dynamic doesn't seem like it's the case it seems like uh, both of you guys are you know pursuing things in, in your respective lives even different as it is um found success in your own ways and, and it's really uh, uplifting to hear you talk about your brother and, and kind of share that so thank you for that um, no, i know uh, i know we've talked about previously that your your dad also was pretty uh, like fit and physically inclined as well as his brothers <laughs> as well as your mom was a ballerina at some point right can you kind of yeah. talk a little bit about that yeah so i don't know how <laughs> i don't know how it happened but i i guess i got pretty lucky like genetically with my with my parents um well i guess on my dad's side like he he and one of his other brothers um who he's closest with were probably the most athletic on his side of the family um so growing up my dad played so my dad's originally from colombia mm -hmm. you know he's one of one of uh 12 siblings wow nine boys yeah it's a lot and they all played sports being from Colombia, you know, sports are obviously a big uh, part of the culture as well as for, you know, a lot of Latin American countries kind of a way to try to make a living. Um, if your goal is to make it to, you know, America, or maybe you play soccer and you, you know, stay wherever you're from. But mm -hmm. at any rate, he played soccer, baseball, um, wrestling, his two, his two main sports were, were wrestling and soccer. Um, 
growing up, he was definitely like, from what I've heard, at least, you know, the, the stronger of the brothers. Um, he wrestled in, in high school, played soccer in high school, um, you know, ended up playing uh, football at MIT, which was, was kind of funny because at the time uh, it wasn't even a, a division three sport. It was like a club team just because oh, athletes okay. back then were not even like um, anything special there. And then I think during his time there, because of the attendance or the quality of talent or whatever you want to call it, they became a D3 team. Um, which is now the case for, for MIT sports. Mm-hmm. Um, on my mom's side, she played sports all growing up as well. Softball, basketball, soccer, um, in high school, her main sports were, she danced, uh, and she played volleyball. And according to her, she was actually much better at volleyball, um, and was very capable of playing volleyball at like a pretty high D one level. Um, but just academically was not, you know, inclined or didn't do well enough to, to make it there. Um, so she ended up going to college for dance uh, and became a professional ballerina for a bit. Um, so yeah, in terms of, you know, in terms of athletics, I definitely got, you know, a pretty solid hand. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I'm the most genetically gifted person, but like just from an overall, uh, athletic base, I feel like I got like a good mix of genes for like strength, endurance flexibility whatever you want to call it like my dad also in his four at when he was 40 decided to do like an iron man just like as a <laughs> i'll train for it whatever let's do it um so yeah i mean i definitely had <clears throat> good uh good genes and then also good influence you know i think that an underrated part of it or maybe something i don't give enough credence to or maybe i guess the way that i would look at it is like i don't have a reference point because it was my own experience but like mm-hmm. just doing sports and being outside and all this stuff was just a normal part of my life that was encouraged by my parents. Like my parents enjoyed doing it themselves, which I guess, you know, if I were to put myself in the shoes of someone whose parents just weren't active and didn't like doing these things, you know, my, my upbringing could have been entirely different. Yeah. I remember there were, you know, there were mornings I'd wake up and before the school bus came at, you know, seven 30 in the morning, like I'd play catch on my front lawn with my mom. Wow, that's that. I mean, that already. I think another thing that's underrated. We uh, I want to highlight is uh, both of your parents having you know played sports, uh, were interested, and you know obviously did well in the sports. I think the work ethic, the dedication, and just kind of uh, the like earlier. The thing that stood out for me that you said was your parents were laissez faire. They were pretty chill as parents, but they wanted you to care about health and education. I think those two things in general are great categories and health is such a thing that I feel like every parent can say they want their kids to to focus on it, but it's maybe they don't create the environment or the standards or the tools for the kids to really realize what does being healthy mean. And I think you have parents who kind of set the precedent for you saying, hey, like playing sports, being fit, being healthy, these are regular things we want you to participate in. And Mm -hmm. you and I know working with different people of all populations and demographics, for some, it's very difficult to even be that person that breaks out of not having ever worked out or not feeling confident or comfortable enough to step in a gym and regularly train, you know, rigorously for something like a powerlifting competition or any, even just, just work out in general. And, and we you've probably met people during your college years where it was their first time stepping foot in the rec center and trying to figure out what, you know, working out is, whereas you and I, you know, had the uh, pleasure of kind of having that background. But uh, contrastingly, I, my parents did not, you know, 
per, per se encouraged me to do sports. I don't think they discouraged me ever, but, you know, neither of them really watched sports growing up. You know, there was no football in the house. So the, all those sports to me were something I had to kind of get into myself. And I mm-hmm. briefly talked to Chance about that as well, because I was always curious, like, why does somebody like this team or why does somebody like watching this sport? I never got that exposure other than, you know, like yeah. uh, right now, uh, South Korea just qualified for the World Cup. Uh, they finished playing their third round Asian uh, championship qualifiers. So that was like the only experience I got of like watching mm-hmm. sports. But uh, yeah, it's, it's great to hear that, you know, you kind of had that precedent set. Now, you know, we, we fast forward a little bit into middle school, high school. When was it that you were like, you know what, baseball is kind of the one I'm, I'm most inclined to, to do and maybe uh, enjoy doing the most. What, when did that switch happen? Oh, so early, man. So early. Um, honestly, I was probably like seven or eight years old. Like I actually, I actually started specializing in baseball, like pretty early on, which like Mm -hmm. as a, as a, you know, being in the strength and conditioning space, as well as like being a coach at this point, like, you know, that like, Oh, when you see kids specialize and just play one sport, you're like, Oh, this is all, all, you know, horrible. Um, But it was really a, it was less of like the, the parental push for it. Cause that's something that you see really commonly in the, in the strength and conditioning world, when you, you know, look at, uh, you know, upcoming athletes, a lot of parents push to get kids playing one sport and be on all these different teams and do these showcases. For me, it was just, I wanted nothing to do with anything but baseball. Like Mm -hmm. it was just, it was all I ever wanted to do every single day of my life all day long. Um, like I said, I played soccer really early on. Um, and I just wasn't good at it. Just flat out was not good at soccer and quit. Um, you know, baseball was something that I loved. I played basketball for a little bit. I was really good until everyone else went through their growth spurt and mine <laughs> just wasn't as big. Like, believe it or not, like I was the big man for like a lot of my youth yeah. playing, you know, basketball where I would play center. You know, I would just, I was just a, like a physical Sean as a center. I'm picturing yeah, that right exactly. now. That's you know what? You, you want to hear a funny story about that actually. So the high school coach, my, my, my high school coach, um, this guy, uh, Mataratona was his last name. Uh-huh. He was like a, a ref or something along those lines for like the youth basketball tournaments. Right. And I was a center, like I said, growing up and I was, I was pretty good. Right. And I remember my dad, my dad told me that he approached my dad and said, Oh, like your son is going to play basketball for me one day. And my dad <laughs> told him, he's like, he's not going to grow that much more. Like I promise you, he will not be playing basketball. And I remember it was probably like sixth or seventh grade. So like right around the time everyone's hitting puberty was my last year playing uh, basketball. And I played it like casually, you know, I mm-hmm. like I played in the league, but it wasn't something I was mentally serious about. It was just yeah. like, uh, okay, while I'm in the off season for baseball and just having occasional practices, this is what's going to fill that time from a physical activity standpoint. So right around that time of puberty, and every kid that I just remember from the past year looking like a child yeah. just sprouted up and I was just getting like fucking knees to my chest. <laughs> like I was just like guys would go for layups and they'd, you know, knee me in the shoulder or the chest. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So that was the point where I realized basketball was no longer for me. But like yeah. I said, it was never a, a severe or a serious mental investment. Um, but yeah, I played I played baseball for 14 years. And before even being 10 years old, like I knew it was just what I wanted to do all the time. Like I was, mm-hmm. I was very, very good at it. Um, size obviously helped, you know, being younger, like I was stronger, could throw harder, could hit the ball further, but just skill wise, I was very, very good um, early on. And 
it was it was all I wanted to do. It's actually funny going back to the sport thing. So I tried out for my first travel team when I was nine. Uh-huh. And that summer league, you know, we, we would try out in May. Summer league would start in June, run till the end of summer. That summer, my dad got a, our family tickets to go see the 2006 World Cup. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We, so we were going to see a couple games. We were going to see uh, Brazil, Australia, um, Brazil, Ghana, and then Italy, Germany. And Italy, Germany was the semifinals game, which yeah. was an insane, insane game. Um, but prior to all of that, you know, we had those tickets that would intersect with several weeks of my travel ball season. And I remember telling my parents, which is, it's, you know, if anybody who's close to me now can kind of see that this hasn't changed much, but back then I was like, I don't want to go to the world cup. I want to <laughs> stay home. I want to play baseball. There's no way. Like I just try, I just made the travel team. Like, this is what I want to do all summer. Um, and, you know, obviously at this point, you know, my memories are not too clear uh-huh. of, of, you know, being a nine-year-old um, or a 10-year-old, but, you know, what I do remember and just looking back at pictures and, you know, that, that, uh, that semifinals game experience, I think stands out a bit more in my mind, but obviously I'm, you know, very happy that that was the experience I got for that chunk of the summer and not, you mm-hmm. know, the, the travel ball that would have made zero difference in my life whatsoever. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, being able to witness a World Cup game, especially at that level is, is a phenomenal experience, like once in a lifetime type of experience. And yeah. I, I, I think regardless though, like one thing that uh, sounds, it, it kind of is curious for me is uh, a lot of my friends, if I talk to them about their childhood, so for many of them, it's pretty blurry, hazy, you know, not a lot to remember, but I think for you, because you had involvement in a lot of sports and a lot of almost memorable kind of experiences, because when you're nine and you make the travel team or 10, that, that is a big deal in yep. your life at the time. That's like probably the biggest deal of your life um, yep. other than maybe doing really well at school on, on something, but even then like ranking or anything at an elementary middle school level is not really a big deal. So, you know, for, for, I think you, it's nice that you have these fond memories, so to speak about like, your experience uh, doing these sports, you know, being recognized as someone who's good at it and also specializing uh, with your own passion rather than mom and dad saying, similarly with like education, right? It's like if parents want you to really focus on school, you see these kids, they might turn out academically inclined in terms of their grades, but, you know, mental health wise, you see a lot of them suffer later down the road, realizing this isn't what I wanted. This is what mom and dad wanted. And I think in your case, it's really cool to see that in all aspects of your life, like it was really just that self-driven um, you know, passion that you had for it. So um, now, now kind of moving forward uh, in high school, when you were playing, uh, were, were you pretty good? Was your team pretty good? What was that experience like? Yeah. So, so I guess I'll, I'll take it back a step because I'll get to the the, the high school thing. I think there's, there's some, an intermediate Mm. period there. So travel, travel baseball was a thing that, you know, around like nine years old, 10 years old starts. um, And, from that point on there are like organizations where like you have a guy who owns this team organization um and in my case i ended up becoming very close to him because i had him Mm -hmm. as a coach forever his son who i'm still very good friends with um this guy keith delucia very very wealthy guy who started this uh organization for for travel baseball around the age of i was probably 11 when he started it Um, and he took us on tournaments all around the country Um, and we had like incredible, incredible experiences, you know, from a, from a competitive standpoint and everywhere that we went, 
it was me and like one of my other teammates were just like overwhelmingly like within you know within the group of the most talented people anywhere we went mm -hmm. and and all growing up you know I was told by my coaches I was told by teams that we would play so for example we played um in this tournament at Disney which is a, it's called like the the wide world of sports they have like mm -hmm. their um you know, sports facility in Disney. I don't know if you knew that or not, but they have like mm -hmm. the Atlanta Braves, their minor league. I think it's their, their double A stadium is in this Disney complex, bunch of soccer teams train there, football teams train there. It was a big tournament that we did. We ended up playing some team from the Dominican Republic in the, in the final, you know, in the oh, championship yeah. game. I ended up hitting like three home runs in that game. We ended up winning the, the coaches, the coaches of the of the Dominican team like invited me to like spend a year in the Dominican Republic and wow. play there. And I was like, I want to do this. And my parents were like, you're not fucking doing that. Um, <laughs> but the team was like owned by by Pedro Martinez, which is, it's like just crazy stuff. Right. And and all growing up, I was like, I am going to be a professional baseball player. Like yeah. I was on track. Everyone that I played against, like I I stacked up for a very long period of time. Um, unfortunately had like a series of injuries along the way it was just like kind of similar with my powerlifting career where it's just like just things pop up and just derail the whole process yeah um and by the time i get to high school i'm still very good like i would say that i dropped off a good bit you know probably around that like 16 to 17 you know probably like 17 years old mm -hmm. around that age where i needed to you know take the same proportional step up and not even staying the same i kind of you know dropped down um, and it was around the time that I also got into lifting and it was like at that point in my life, like I loved baseball so much. Um, but I kind of knew at that point and maybe this was a bit defeatist. I don't know if it was, or just being realistic. Like, I think I knew that college was kind of going to be the end of it for me in terms yeah. of play playing baseball. Um, but my, my high school team was fantastic. Like we were, um, so I played, I played for three years in high school. Um, my freshman year, I went, I didn't go to my public high school. I still went to the private mm -hmm. middle school that I had gone to. Um, but all three years we made it to, um, you know, like the county finals kind of thing. Um, my junior year was probably the best year that we had. Um, just a very talented, very talented team. Like within Long Island, we were like top, you know, we were best in our division and then obviously, you know, top four, top five teams, whatever. So it was, it was really nice. Um, it was, our team was mostly made up of like the same kids that I played like travel mm. baseball with. So it just wow. worked out well that like the kids who were farmed within this private team, you know, private team organization all lived within the same school district. Like one even moved from his old school district to our school district to start high school there because like where he came from, like the, the schooling system sucked. Like he didn't have the best family life and, and ended up living with one of our friends who did live in the school district for all of his high school career. Um, so we just had like just this really, really talented, you know, group of kids, which I think is, you know, one part because of what, what I'd said before about the travel team, but then also like, I think with my generation, like the, the, the baseball fever kind of died out. Like yeah. I know just cause I still communicate with my high school coach, like all the kids who came after me, like just baseball is not something that's, I guess, pushed yeah. anymore in these later generations as much around here. You know, a lot of kids play lacrosse or, um, 
you know, soccer, but, you know, baseball's kind of become, you know, it used to be the, the like top sport at our school. And then now it's, you know, not anymore, but yeah, you guys yeah. are like the dream, uh, dream team generation. And after that, it's that the legacy kind of is with you guys, but you know, yep. uh, that being said, like, uh, do you have any favorite teams uh, when it comes to baseball? Cause I'm always curious to hear, I know, I know you've already shared these elsewhere, but uh, your, your favorite sports yeah. teams, not just baseball, but in general, like what, what are the teams you support and watch now? Yeah, I've never, so I've always been for the, I've always been a Yankees fan. Um, but I've never, I've never gotten behind like the, like the fanatic definition of a fan. Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand the people who like, are like, like bleed for their team and they hate the other teams. And they like, I just, maybe I, it's because like, I played the sport at like a, a decently high level and just mm-hmm. like trained for it. But it's like, I don't know. There's just not that, that, that I don't have that fanaticism. Right. Like I, I support the Yankees because it's where I'm from. Like yeah. a lot of my childhood was, you know, looking up to Yankee players. Um, but I always tell people who ask me this question, like I spend more time nowadays watching non-Yankee baseball than I do watching Yankee baseball. I see. Like I just I love the sport. I love watching it. Like I love players. Um, so I don't have like a, you know, a crazy allegiance to the Yankees. Like I just love seeing talent do what talent does um and because i'm more removed from and less attached to other sports i have that mindset even more so because i don't have any affiliation to any Mm. teams within you know football for example like i just love players you know i have always been like a huge tom brady fan and then living Mm. in massachusetts for all four years of college i was just a patriots fan by by you know proximity kind of thing and and i think uh in my opinion, I feel like that's what the the ideal or true definition of a fan should be is someone who truly loves the game and respects the players and the teams. And even if you have a team that you stand by due to proximity or just because they're, you know, your favorite team or whatever, I don't think it should give people, uh, uh, I guess, the credence or green light to say, oh, every other team, they they can all burn and die and they all suck <laughs> or I hate them. It's like, I, I don't want to see other players get hurt in a game. And that's the reason, you know, that team loses. I want to see two, two solid teams duke it out and may the best team win fair and square you know and i think yep. uh, a lot of fans and i'm sure you could agree with every sport it's like 80 percent of the fans are the uh drunk tailgate we just go watch the support and have fun fan and then there's the 20 percent when you talk to them they can have pretty intelligent conversation about the coaching strategies what's going on in the organization you know uh management etc and, and they're really involved in the kind of the technical theory of the game of why certain teams are doing well or not and that's yep. why like for me even though right now i'm a houston rockets fan obviously our organization organization did really well, you know, in the previous years, we didn't win uh, over the last 10 years, but we're just at the point in time where we're rebuilding. But to me, that doesn't mean I don't want to be a fan just because we're not doing well. It's like, I still support the organization, but I know right now as a fan, I'm not going to have any big wins to look forward to. And that's okay with me. If other teams that I, if like, if you ask me, what's the team that I want to see do well in the championships, then I'll give you other answers that these are the teams that I think are doing well. And, and uh, I enjoy watching. So I'm, I'm kind of on the same page with you when it comes to treating and watching sports in that sense yeah so you know that that's a that's awesome that uh, i know uh, at least with the yankees they're historically pretty pretty big organization and, and well liked so i'm sure some people listening in are like go sean and the others are like screw sean i hate the yankees or or whatever oh, yeah, i was are. i was gonna say that i don't know if the yankees have a history of being well liked i mean they're well liked within new york outside of that i don't think any i think most sports fans like by the typical definition of a sports uh, fan like 
I think most baseball fans don't want to see the Yankees win most of the time. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't stand, you know, you go to games and like, you know, you have people from the different teams starting fights or, you know, uh, a pitcher, uh, you know, walks a run in and then you have people like throwing food on the field. It's just like, I've never, I've never met anybody who like played the sport, like seriously, who behaves that way. You know, one of the, one of the coaches that I had growing up and like a huge mentor of mine. Um, so to backtrack the guy who owned our, our organization growing up, he had a suite at Yankee stadium and he would take oh, wow. a bunch of us to games all the time. And one of the guys that I'm talking about, who was, you know, my, my batting coach. And then also like just a, a mentor in general, every game that we would go to, he would sit there with his head in his hand and just stare at the game in pure silence. Everyone's, you know, drinking, eating, having fun, yeah. whatever, just behaving like normal sports fans. And he is just sitting there just glued to the field. And like, that's, that's kind of how I felt when I would watch baseball. It's just like, you're a student of the game. Like you just love what's happening. And I think that like, you know, as we're having this call, I just think about like all the different, you know, mentors I had in my life at that age and like what different purpose they served. And I think this guy in particular, Jimmy Gells, is probably one of the the biggest, if not the biggest influence for like me having this like laser focus, attention to detail kind Analytical. of mindset with things yeah. that I do. Um, so just, I'm just picturing him right now, like having that, that vision in my head of him, just like head on his thumb, you know, on his, on his <laughs> hand, just staring at the field, just watching, you know, darting his head back from the pitcher to the batter, to the pitcher, to the batter, you know? So, yeah. That's, that's awesome. man. now, uh, with, with that, uh, contrasting in your high school experience to your academics, uh, would you say, uh, when you were a high schooler, you really identified as this baseball player and then like, uh, in term comparison to like you as a student, what were you like? Were you taking a lot of AP classes, prepping for college? Obviously, getting into MIT is no easy feat. It, it is quite impressive as a, as a high schooler. Um, what were you like as a student? So, so growing up, this is it's it's crazy. You know, I, I your your call. This call is making me realize, or this podcast is making me realize, like how how lucky I was to have as many people who course corrected me or redirected mm -hmm. me in my life because like if I didn't have you know maybe even one of them like things would have turned out way differently wow. so like growing up like I was I was very smart but very disobedient in school like I'd get in trouble all the time like I didn't want to be in class I was a class <laughs> clown and my parents around the time I was in fourth grade so I was 10 um they applied for me to attend this private school that required which I don't even know if you could like do at this point but mm -hmm. you you had you needed a minimum IQ to get into the school like it was just straight oh, wow. up take an IQ test if you're below 132 you're no good whatever you know whatever mm -hmm. type of IQ test they did if you're above like you could get on a, a waiting list type thing um and like I scored well enough that <laughs> the school just like bu bumped me over the two-year waiting list and I attended this private school but I was horrible. Like I was, I was, like I said, I would be in the principal's office all the time. Like I would be, um, you know, just, just a, just a clown. Like that's, that's just how I behaved. Like I behaved like an, like an athlete you'd expect to behave mm, in school. I see. Um, and like, there were no sports at this school cause it was just a private academic school. So like, you know, I'm sure I was acting out for a variety of reasons. And then I had one teacher uh, Mrs. Sheck, she was my chemistry teacher and, and chemistry was my favorite subject in school, just was mm -hmm. always drawn to it. 
And her and this one other teacher, uh, Mrs. Williams was, was my English teacher. They both kind of just like, and this, my school was very small. So like every student would have, you know, you'd have like a relationship with your teachers, right? It wasn't like a big public school where you kind yeah. of just get lost amongst the noise. Like every grade had maximum like 30 kids. So wow. you would get, I'd get sat down and be like, listen, like basically you're too, you're too fucking smart to be behaving like this. <laughs> like you just, you, you have so much to that you can accomplish. And they were just like, you, you need to, you just need to stop fucking up. Like you can't, can't keep doing this. So that was like a huge turning point for me around, I don't know, this maybe happened sixth grade, seventh grade that kind of refocused me for school and take it more seriously. So, you know, by the time I got to high school, coming out of this private school, we were essentially given the opportunity to like take all of the typical classes that kids in the public school counterparts would take, but like two to three years early. So by the time I got to high school, I didn't have to take any of the, you know, trig, pre-calc, chem, physics, whatever. So as soon as I got to high school, I was just taking, you know, all AP courses. Um, I see. Yeah. So it was, I mean, I took high school, high school seriously. You know, there were a couple of classes that I would say required like a decent amount of time. But I think like a lot of people listening who maybe did well in high school or went to a good college probably found like high school as a whole kind of understimulating. And it was just like, uh, you know, you're just, you're just following the, the, the formula, right? Just like do the work, you know, study for the exam, do the practice stuff like, and you'll get, you know, you put an A, you get out B and it just worked out that way formulaically. It's not, you know, too much of a, you don't have to be super resourceful. You don't get any sort of, um, you don't ever, um, you know, experience any sort of like identity crisis, I guess, at that age, like that, that happens way later, or that happens, you know, not too far later uh, in college. But yeah. yeah, I mean, in high school, I was, you know, I, I think I graduated with 15 AP classes. Um, you know, I was obviously, quite a like, lot. yeah, yeah, I took, it was like, you know, five, one year, you know, six, another year, and then four or five, my senior year, something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I guess, kind of known as like, I played baseball, but I was also like the strong kid later on in high school. But then I was like all throughout it, like the the smart kid in my grade. Like I didn't have the highest GPA, but like mm -hmm. I had, you know, like I said, the most rigorous course load. Um, and honestly, yeah, you weren't just the meathead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my high school experience was, was interesting. You know, I was, I felt in multiple groups in an equal capacity like i said like i played baseball so like the community within baseball was there i knew how to talk to people who were athletes um so i was friends with a lot of athletes you know i was obviously doing really well in school so mm. i knew all the nerdy kids i would say that what what took me the most you know time to like uh, adjust to or become part of the group because I, I at the time i just wanted to be yeah. In, in all these spheres was like the, the partying kids probably mm -hmm. wasn't until like the, the latter half of my uh, high school career that that became, you know, a social group for me to be within. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I think that's how I would summarize my, 
my and, high school experience. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because I know uh, right now for those of the people listening, like if they don't know about this already, like you're pretty, you know, abstinent from drinking or uh, recreational drugs or just anything of the sort. You're pretty, yep. uh, I would say, just like straight edge about those things. And I, I don't even think it's from necessarily like a religious reason or anything that's like political. It's like, I feel like it's just knowing you and, and w- like with you being also very methodical about reading your body and just knowing how things like alcohol don't really, you know, supplement well with uh, recovery or training, et cetera. I feel like you're pretty abstinent from those things uh, to, to hear that uh, you kind of wanted to get in with that group uh, during high school. It's uh, it's funny to imagine uh, Sean of that time, um, you know, <laughs> trying to hang out with the kids, maybe drink a beer or something. And, you know, yeah. uh, I try to try to enjoy it, pretend at least to enjoy it. Cause I know in high school when I tried my first beer, just cause my friend's mom was like, Oh, you can just taste the sip if you want. And then I was like, Oh, you drink this for pleasure. Like this is gross. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know yep. why people would drink that. And I felt bad. Cause I was like, she was like, you can just throw it away. And I was like, Oh man, now I feel bad. Cause <laughs> I just wasted the whole can. But yeah, like that, that's, uh, I think, I think similarly for me in high school, like I I was, my parents weren't super rigorous. They they valued education, but I think uh, I kind of had that fear of letting them down or disappointing them. So I tried a little bit harder, but I don't think I took school as seriously as I, as I could have, but I was similar in that I took a lot of AP classes. I kind of was in a lot of different friend groups as well. And I think um, looking back, I mean, it's, it's good that I got to be in an environment that was my my school is very, uh, you know, in a very decent area with a lot of smart kids. My parents, uh, you know, was was able to buy a house in kind of like the the lower middle class area that zoned into this nice public school. So all, my friends growing up or you know driving bmws had sat tutoring you know everyone and and, and even my first friend who took me to the gym we would uh, get in as a, a ben's suv with butt warmers for for the winter yep. time and i was i was yep. always so thankful that we could go to the gym already <laughs> warmed up but uh, that's that's a very very interesting to kind of hear your high school experience i think one thing i'm curious about there is um, I know like you had those teachers who kind of impacted you and said, Hey, Sean, get your, get yourself, get your act together. Like you yep. have all this potential. Do you feel like as you were going through school, taking all these AP classes, it's not easy. I mean, obviously, even though you were uh, intelligent, uh, it's not easy to do well. Do you feel like you just uh, kind of developed this drive inside of you to say like, I, I do want to succeed as an athlete, as a student. And like, what pushed you to really go above and beyond to do well enough to be at that level? This is a tough, a tough question because, you know, I think, I think a lot of it really goes back to how early and how prevalent these mentors or like good sources of guidance were for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's start, like I said, it started really early, you know, it was having, like I said, like so many strong male role models on the athletic side of my life. And like I said, there were, you know, I had, that organ, you know, that baseball, you know, team that I was on, the guy who owned it was a mentor for us. He's like a very, very intense, very driven entrepreneurial guy. Like he had made his money in all these different areas, owned all these different companies. So like that, that drive, that intensity were, were characteristics that were imparted onto me. Right. And then I had Jimmy Gells, my batting coach, who was like the student of the game, the super methodical, the very focused attention to detail guy. That was imparted into me. Then his brother, Brian Gels, was another one of our coaches. Very patient guy, very laid back, mm-hmm. kind of like the emotional neutralizer, like very much got me out of my own head, right? On the That's on the athletic side. I had that every single day of my life for years. On the academic side, pretty much all of my teachers were, were female. So I had, you know, 
on the academic side, like these very stern while still supportive, you know, female teachers who would push you to excel on the academic side. Um, and like in the same way with baseball, I had that for years, every single day, right? Like I said, my class was 30 kids tops. Yeah. And then each year it dwindled down because there were kids who either didn't want to be in that school anymore. Their parents didn't want them to be there. So every year the classes got smaller, but you still have access to the same resources. So you just get more attention as it, as it goes on. Right. So I had that all throughout development in high school. I would say my high school baseball coach was a big mentor for me, but past him, all of the, all of the, the, the stage had been set in years prior. So to answer like what drove me, like I, I saw a post on this the other day. It was like, uh, it was one of those memes. That's like, Oh no, I stepped in shit and they uh. flip the shoe up and the shoe says, find your why. Cause I'm sure you hear people say that all the time. Like you need yeah. to find your why, like find the reason you do this. And like, I, I don't know if I have like an explanation. Like, I feel like it was just something that it's some just something that you do. Like you get faced with something and you're like, all right, how am I going to do this? And it, it just like the action precedes the, the discovery of purpose. And I think a lot of that stemmed from just like, like I said, like all of those, those, positive characteristics were instilled so early it just became like natural i guess you know be, uh, i, I want to pause you there real quick because that just kind of shot up a lot of light bulbs in my head what you just said because i think one thing i've i've noticed uh you know just in talking with you working with you and, and for people that are have or are listening that have either worked with you or don't know this about you um sean is the guy who's very like quick to respond uh, no no hesitation um i think you just you are the go-getter uh, kind of the definition of that for me uh, as as someone I look up to as a friend as a uh, a fellow person I work with like you you definitely just go get the job done even if there's a lot on your plate and I want to talk a little about stress tolerance later but even there's a lot on your plate I feel like you just go run with it and even before the thought enters your head of oh man I got a lot on my plate I'm stressed out like you're already doing the first two tasks and knocking them out and I think I think uh, for some other people, whether because of the lack of mentorship or development, uh, when they get to this point in their adult life, when they're self, hopefully self-reflecting and realizing, man, I got to do better with my life, they have to kind of go through this cognitive behavioral therapy to teach themselves to not uh, go to those a, B, and C negative thoughts that kind of prevent them from just acting on it or pulling the trigger and just being the person that does what they say they're going to do or pursues the goals that they set for themselves. I think for you, it's like the goals are already been set a long time ago and they're developing and continuing to develop as the, the years go on. And you're already just in the act of doing it. So I think that's something that uh, I, I definitely kind of look up to you in that regard of wanting to do a better job myself is, you know, there's, there's sometimes that fear, that hesitation, et cetera. Like you, you, you are the exemplary, you know, person that I can go to that really just is the go-getter. Now, you know, when you got into MIT, was it something your parents at the time were proud of? And were they like really pushing you to be like, oh, you should at least get to this level. Like what was the acceptance into college like for you? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, something you mentioned at the beginning of this call was like uh, how, um, or I guess you didn't mention, we talked about it before we got on the yeah. call, was that, you know, uh, my dad also went to MIT and growing up, uh, he never talked about it at all, never Ooh, pushed okay. for it. And even while I was applying to colleges, because at the time, you know, going into your senior year, you're 
deciding where you want to apply to, where you're going to write the common app essays and the supplements yeah, for. Yeah. And I remember him actively like almost discouraging me. Like, you don't want to go there. Like, <laughs> just like, it's not even your first, it wasn't even my first choice. Like I wanted to go, I wanted to go to Stanford. That was my, oh, that was my okay. number one. Um, but MIT was on the list because just, I was more inclined in school toward the math and sciences. And I think, and I, and I actually spoke about this with someone a couple of weeks ago, like I hate, and this could be a whole different conversation that we don't <laughs> have to have now, but I hate that in school, right. It's particularly like that, you know, the high school academic path that the, the path toward like excellence or being deemed like academically elite mm. only goes down the STEM route. And everything else is kind of left for like the weird, like the art stuff is like the weird colored hair kids. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. right, this is what that's for. But it's like, you know, my own like personal desires. And this is something I've learned, you know, over the years, like don't align with STEM, but because school takes you down that track, that's what I was good at. So, you know, MIT was on the radar and going into my senior year of high school, I had pretty much planned I was going to apply to, you know, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, uh, Columbia, MIT, Duke, mm -hmm. prestigious names. Yeah. And at the time, and I, I think it's still the case probably for these schools, but like some schools have like restrictive early admission, restrictive early apps where like you can't apply to multiple schools early. You can only pick one. Right. So I'm doing this like risk analysis of like, okay, <laughs> if I apply here early and then don't get in, like that fucks up my chances of, you know, potentially getting in here, yeah. whatever. So I had done a, done a campus visit, uh, for MIT for baseball, you know, prior to the, the start of the school year. Um, and while MIT does not do like recruitment for sports, it definitely helped that one, I played a sport that I was going to play there. Mm -hmm. Two, the, the coach knew me so he could give some sort of referral to the admissions office. So it didn't make sense for me to apply to Stanford early because then if I didn't get in, then I potentially botched my chances of getting into MIT. Yeah. So I got, I ended up getting into MIT early. Um, and by that point, I was like, okay, the only other place I want to go to is Stanford. So I was like, I'm not going to submit Harvard. I'm not going to submit any of these other schools. I'm just going to submit Stanford. Okay. I ended up, I ended up not getting into Stanford. So it made mm -hmm. my decision very easy. Right. I only, apply, only applied to two schools, got rejected from one going to one. Um, but yeah, I mean, my parents were, were elated. You know, I think that, I think that, you know, any parents of, of like high achieving, you know, uh, academic kids you yeah. know when you see your kid get into a, a school like that it's probably very rewarding uh especially since they you know poured a ton of resources into you know my academic experience especially you know early on and going through the private school that i went to um you know and they saw that i that i worked hard and i cared about it so um yeah i mean it was a very very uh very happy time i remember actually it was um so my friend, my, two of my friends and I were taking these weekend classes at Columbia. Mm -hmm. I did this for like three years of, of high school where Columbia offered this like weekend thing where you would take an entrance exam. And then if you got in, you would just take a course two days a week uh, on the weekend for like, you know, a few months. So you would take like if you wanted to do a neurobiology course or an economics oh, course okay. or a chemistry course, you know, basically just get college level, you know, uh, teachers coursework, yeah. or coursework. 
while still in high school. And it was just this thing you could, you know, put on your resume. So I did it all three years of, or all three years that I was at my public high school. And then my senior year, two of my best friends did it with me as well. And I remember we all had class on Pi Day. No, not Pi Day. Sorry. We had it on 12 14, mm. which was the day that early admissions came out for MIT. Oh, and I remember okay. we all walked in that day. And since we were taking a science class, like all the kids that were there applied to MIT. Mm. Right. Everyone's Everyone just class. Everyone was tense. Yeah. Everyone was tense because that was the day that we all got our early admissions, you know, uh, either acceptance or rejection letter back. Yeah. Um, and the teacher like kind of knew about that. And they were like, okay, like when, when the admissions comes out, you guys can all go out into the hallway and check your emails, <laughs> whatever. But like every kid in there is like freaking out. And I wish I still had the video because one of my best friends <laughs> at the time who, who I'm still good friends with recorded it on his phone and we were all in the bathroom and I'm scrolling through my phone and they're watching me like get the acceptance. And then like yeah. we all start screaming and jumping up and down. Um, so that was definitely like a very memorable, you know, experience to, to look back on. But I felt bad because we, <laughs> the three of us walked back into the class and nobody else there got in. <laughs> oh man. So we were just like, like 25 kids and like all of them are just like, you know, like, completely demoralized at this point. Yeah. Like, I don't even want to keep going with this. I think we were doing like some, uh, I think it was a genetics class. So we were doing some, like, I think it was like the, the typical, uh, uh, Drosophila, like genetics lab where you look at the differences in, in wing mm -hmm. shape and eyes and, you know, learn about her heredity and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, every kid was was pretty dejected, but I was happy. <laughs> that, that's that's a, I mean, as sad as it is, it's awesome that at least the, you have that positive memory of like getting in. Now, um, I want I want to kind of uh, transition that with two questions. One of the questions is going to be about what made you you know sign up and eventually compete for your first power of me. But that yep. question, I want us to just briefly touch on because I really want uh, to hear more about that. You know, I know med school is in in, in your mind at some point. Um, yep. You were a mechanical engineering major, which Yep. Um, I wouldn't say is the first choice for a lot of people that are going into med school, but it makes sense with, you know, all this kind of your skill set coming into school. So, you know, I guess the first thing I'd, I'd ask is like, what made you pick mechanical engineering? Is that something immediately when you got in, you were like, oh, that's the one I'm going to pick. What was, what was that like? Okay. This is, yeah, this is a wild ride of trying to figure out what you want. And this <laughs> brings me back to my rant that I've, I've, I've done a rant on this on YouTube on like my <laughs> series that I've done about school is that high school does not prepare you to deal with the workload of college and it doesn't more importantly no, does not yeah. not equip you to deal with navigating what you want to do or how you should even go about picking that because there's so much that I've learned over the years and just in terms of how do you decide what you should do and the way that the roadmap that I had for trying to navigate that as a kid is just completely wrong mm. um like I said growing up chemistry was my favorite subject by far yeah. still is still the most interesting thing in the world to me um, coming into college though, I was thinking, I was like, I'm going to major in either chemistry or I'm going to major in math. That's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And my freshman year, the way that most schools work is you just have to take the general Institute requirements, whatever they might be. So at the time, my freshman year, I had to take, uh, I had to take chemistry. I had to take physics and I had to take multivariable calc. That was like what most kids took their freshman fall. And then mm -hmm. the fourth class would be some humanities class. So you have to get those out of the way, no matter what. They obviously are not specific to any yeah, discipline. Like four classes. Exactly. And then your freshman spring, 
you would try to get a couple more general institute requirements out of the way and then maybe dabble in some of the intro classes of the major that you want to do. So that spring, I ended up taking um, differential equations, which was not a core requirement, but if you went engineering, it was a requirement for any pretty much any engineering major. Um, I took biology, I took intro to psychology, and I took... Uh, the fourth course is escaping me. I can't remember what it is at this mm-hmm. point. But after your freshman year, you have to declare your major. Okay. So what I did my winter period. So MIT has this thing called I- IAP, which is independent activities period. What most kids do during that time is they either say, fuck this place. I'm going home, <laughs> spending my time relaxing <laughs> Two, they work in a lab that they've okay. you know gotten a research position at. Or three, they take a class. And usually the kids who take the classes are freshmen because they're trying to you know, pick up on some sort of skill. And at the time I took intro to Python, I was like okay. 35% of the students here code. They are computer science or electrical engineering majors. Let me see if this is for me. I just didn't like it. And knowing that after my spring, I had to declare a major, having ruled that out, I was like, okay, you know, chemistry is interesting to me. But from what I've spoken to people about chemical engineering, it's not at all like solid state chemistry, right? It's completely different. So I'm like, okay, I want to do something that I enjoy, but is also versatile for the sake of finding a job one day. And Mm -hmm. the most common major after electrical and computer science is mechanical. So that's pretty much what led me to pick that. Mm -hmm. Why I did, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think it was just, there was not enough time and that's just process development pressure that's what kind of pressure led me to, to choose, you know, just thinking about my, my own genuine interest at the time, you know, pure chemistry was something that was very interesting to me. Um, Physics, namely like the electricity and magnetism side was particularly interesting to me, which knowing that I should have been like, okay, Sean, like you like the E&M stuff of physics more than you like the mechanic side. Like you should have just majored in electrical engineering, but whatever, (laughs) there's not, you know, there's no, there's no going back there. Um, and then something I ended up loving, you know, that I found out way too late, you know, my senior year of, of college was like statistic or uh, probability. Like I really like discrete math. Mm-hmm. I never got the experience to do anything with that. Obviously took it my senior year. Um, but I decided on mechanical purely out of, I have to decide at this point in time, this seems like what makes the most sense. So I wasn't pre-med coming mm-hmm. in. Uh, not at all. I was undecided like most kids were. Um and just settled on Mech E. And after my sophomore year of just crushing myself with Mech E classes, I just realized like, okay, this is not what I want to do, yeah. but I'm deep enough into this that I'm going to finish it. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to make my life any more difficult by picking another major that I may be unsure of, and then having more pressure to finish a degree, maybe not even yeah. finishing it on time. You know, I might as well finish this. So I ended up finishing Mech E while doing like the pre-med requirements, um, which, you know, a lot of the requirements for other kids at schools, you know, for pre-med, like they might have to take, you know, calculus, they might have to take physics, they might have to take, you know, all these classes that they normally wouldn't take. But since MIT has them as part of their core requirements, those were already knocked out. So I needed to take like a biology lab, a chemistry lab, organic chemistry, uh, biochemistry. uh, And I think maybe like a couple more classes, like just, mm-hmm. you know, not as specific of classes. Um, so halfway through school, I was like, I'm going to pick this up because, 
you know, I'm interested in the human body, which is such a bullshit, you know, thing that (laughs) when you're anywhere between 18 and 22, you think is like a real justification of wanting to be a doctor, which like, again, like I said, like it's, it's not even, you know, nobody checks you on that. Like you don't have uh, adults because like, you know, if adults either in professional roles or even parental roles here, you want to be a doctor. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Become a doctor. Right. Um, But like nobody's there to check you and say like, that's a fucking stupid reason. That's not, that is not carrying you through medical school. That's not, you know, a real you, know you having said that, I wish like it's a thing that most universities implement at least freshman year where they maybe have like speakers that volunteer their time of different job fields that just come early on in fall semester, have a talk to the kids about this is my experience being a doctor. These are the things that I wish I could have done differently. Or I encourage you guys now while you're 18, that if this is the reason you're picking it, don't pick it um, yep. and reconsider. And I think that would have really helped a lot of people because they're hearing it from straight up people in the field the pros and cons of their experience yep. but yeah. unfortunately that's not the case and you know you had to to um, pit, settle on mecky just recoup and try to take what you could um, yeah. but at least uh, uh you know you you were committed to finishing it unlike some people who either give up or you know have to take the extended two three extra years to just try to complete their major yeah no yeah i i definitely agree with you you need people to come in and like shatter kids worldviews at that <laughs> age because it's like you're in you're in one of two camps basically it's like you're either the son or the daughter of someone doing exactly what they want you to do, right? Like you have parents who are doctors who want their kids to become doctors, right? And it's like, you don't want to do it, but you're doing it anyway. So you need someone mm-hmm. to come in and be like, no, you, you, know, you shouldn't do this just because your parents are telling you to do this. Or you have an opposite scenario where you have parents who are trying to be the, the roadmap or, or the, the guidance on how to do something that they themselves have not done, right? It's like you have parents who like aren't doctors or maybe aren't even, you know, college educated telling kids that like, you should be a doctor for this reason, this reason, this reason, right? So it's like, it would benefit that kid to have a doctor come in and be like, this is why I became a doctor, not this reason. If you want to be a doctor, you have to want to be it for these reasons. And this is how you're going to do it. And this is how you're not going to do it. So in either, in either camp, like you definitely need those types of resources. And like, like you said, you know, most colleges don't have it, you know, they make kids settle on things far before they know what they want to do before they have the, even the mental wherewithal to navigate it. Um, (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, I mean, uh, within all of that, um, uh, unless you have more to add, uh, uh, within all that, when does you just picking a meet come into the picture? Because I know you were still probably working out, you know, you played baseball and then now you're transitioning into being, you know, a bit more of a student role yep. with, with MIT. Uh, when does doing a competition and I believe 2015 just kind of come into the picture? So I actually I actually did my first meet in 2013. Um, okay. And the reason the reason I had said earlier on that I kind of saw college being the end of baseball for me is that like I stayed really good in spite of doing a lot of things that made me not really good. Like I was, I got really into lifting like midway through high school. Um, and just like, I wanted to be strong. I wanted to like look jacked. Um, and like, we'd be on baseball tournaments where we'd play three games in a day. And then I would like leave the hotel on my own and walk to the nearest LA fitness, pay for a guest pass and like, train legs right or like in high school in the winter when i could be you know doing arm care stuff and running a long toss program to like improve my arm strength and throw harder 
Like I'm squatting and deadlifting and doing all this stuff. So I just was drawn to the strength and conditioning side pretty early on um, just for pure enjoyment's sake. And one of my teammates' brothers, he played baseball, but his main sport was football. And he also power lifted for football. Now he trained with Shauna Mendelson, which if you are, if you know who Shauna Mendelson is and who that whole multiply crowd is, it's, it's a circus, yeah. right? But at the time, that was the only thing that was really local to me in 2013, you know, especially at that time of year, you know, our uh, RPS at the time was like pretty prevalent, but like only in the summertime in New York, mm-hmm. obviously now we have meets everywhere all year round. Um, but at the time it was like an unsanctioned, like IPA meet. He was like, just do it. You're strong, whatever. Yeah. So I did a meet November of 2013, loved it. Then did a meet February, 2014 USPA loved it even more, you know, spent baseball season doing baseball stuff. Cause it was my senior year of high school the last, you know, the last year of high school baseball. And then after that was over, I did a meet RPS that summer then I enroll in college and I'm playing baseball. So I'm like, okay, like I'm going to keep lifting for baseball, but I'm, you know, powerlifting was a phase, right? It yeah. was just something that I would compete in for fun, but not really do for real. So I'm playing baseball, <clears throat> you know, while being an MIT student. And I'm realizing that the structure of D3 sports and specifically MIT is just, it's just not enough for me. Like I need, yeah. I need to be pushed at something. I need to be getting better at something. I need to feel like I'm, I'm doing something for more than just the enjoyment factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, the restrictions on practicing were super strict. Cause like D three sports, they actually have a limit on the amount of oh. hours you can oh. practice in an off season because like, since it's not a D one program, they're like, you can't be hosting practices all winter. Like basically just they, 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 in the D3 realm, acknowledge that it's secondary to your academics. And then at MIT, it's even worse because like we have limited practicing space and especially being in Massachusetts, it's the winter. So it's not like you can just go out on the field. You know, you have women's volleyball or basketball or whatever going on. So you just don't have space to really, you know, set up a whole cage and and take batting practice. So at the time I hired I found Joey Franzo, Joey Flex Mm -hmm. on Instagram. And he was literally at the time advertising to take on powerlifting clients. I was his first ever powerlifting client. Oh, wow. And I hired him and I was like, I want to do a meet before my baseball season starts. And, you know, yeah, you know, we, we as coaches now hate getting those inquiries where it's like, (laughs) oh, I just want to do a meet, like coach me for this meet. Right. But at the time he took me, I guess, because I was, I was strong and I, and I, you know, I guess through my words and, and uh, you know, whatever context made myself sound interesting. Um, and it was my first USAPL meet and leading into that point, I'd been watching YouTube videos with like, you know, Candido and had learned that within the USAPL, there's now this whole competitive pathway to get to the pinnacle of the sport, right? The other federations that I competed in, it was just like these one-off kind of things. But in doing USAPL, I realized that there was actually like a a, a schedule or a calendar year. Um, so when spring season came around, I quit and I was like, okay, I'm going to take powerlifting seriously. Now I, after having experienced and talking to some of the older guys on the baseball team and hearing how, like, you know, they kind of just do it for fun. Some of them felt like they were better when they started and worse. Now I was just like, okay, this is not what I'm going to spend my four years doing. I need to 
channel this energy into something else. So <clears throat> 2015, I would say it was like the first year of taking like powerlifting really seriously. Cause it was the first year yeah. that I cut baseball out, had a coach and was like, now I have a competitive cycle. Now I'm going to compete here, here, here. And to, to highlight that a little bit, I'm going to first tease you a bit because uh, now that I look at open <laughs> powerlifting and see those three uh, other meets before 2015, uh, for, for those of you listening, like these three meets are the only meets in Sean's career where he did not hit above a 300 bench. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was uh, 245, 292, and 295, uh, although for a 17, 18-year-old, you know, not terrible numbers by any means. Um, although comparative to the crowd nowadays with guys like Aiden Raider on our team. Yeah, other garbage now. Uh, yeah, they, they're just beasts but but uh that USAPL meet was the beginning of the first 300 plus uh, bench journey for Sean and 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 that year to also highlight that 2015 year I remember I think you won uh teen raw nationals against yep. another friend Koi. and uh yeah Koi and Koi uh now lives in Houston he's married uh, to one of my former uh lifters and clients Augusta they and they, they, too, yeah right? they have a kid now and I'm, I'm really happy to just see them both doing really well but yeah like I remember Koi was uh, pretty competitive. He was in that high Texas high school powerlifting yeah. scene. You know, he yep. came to UT San Antonio where, where, you know, Ashton and all the other kind of great names are at. And, you know, you, you kind of showed up and, and I would, I would say like, obviously your numbers leading up to that meet was still impressive, but it's not like at the time, uh, you know, you had this big name just built yet and you came in and won that meet. So I guess uh, maybe the question there would be, do you feel like <laughs> after having done that, you were like, you know what, I made the right decision with the baseball, you know, uh, quitting in the spring and, I can commit to this and really take this somewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I think that that was definitely pivotal, <clears throat> especially because, you know, I lived, so I lived in a fraternity house and I lived, the, the fraternity house was literally right across from the baseball fields. Like you could mm -hmm. just you walk outside your house, you cross the street and then you could hop a fence and walk <laughs> toward the baseball field. Yeah. So when springtime came around and I was not playing, it's just like when you play baseball, like the smell of spring, it just immediately floods your head with like baseball. Like you're mm. going to go to practice today. You're, you know, you're thinking about batting practice. You're thinking about a game, like just at the time, that's all that gets associated with, with that weather and that, and that time of year. Um, so it's like very, it's like, it's very depressing where you're like, fuck, like this is the first year in, you know, 14 years that I'm yeah. not doing this. This is crazy. Um <clears throat> But when I went to nationals that year, that that definitely was like a big, a big change for me, um, because, you know, at the time when you're that young, you know, you are you look up to people in a in a you're like kind of like a fan and they're a celebrity kind of way. <clears throat> and up until that point, your interactions with those people are very distant because yeah. it's either you're watching them on YouTube or if you're lucky, you get a response on, you know, Instagram or Facebook or a whatever. Or exactly. Exactly. That's like, that's the greatest day of your life when, you know, when, you know, Johnny Candido <laughs> likes your comment or whatever. Um, so coming into that year's nationals, you know, I remember talking to Joey leading into it. I'm like, do you think I could beat Koi? Do you think I could beat Koi? And he's like, yeah, like, I think you're going to be fine. And on meet day, you know, I'm, I'm stressing out. I'm like, okay, like, you know, G I know who Gene Bell is. Yeah. So I see Gene handling Koi and I'm like, okay, this is like serious. And at the time, Joey was not a name at all. No, right. Like yeah, it was, you know, Joey. Yeah, exactly. Joey was not established at any, you know, he was as new as I was at that time. Right. So, um, you know, I'm just like getting very nervous. He's like, you got it. You got it. And then after squats, I think I had squatted four, six or sorry, five sixty two, And I think Koi mm -hmm. only ended up hitting like 
It was either 474 or 507, but it was a big enough gap where it was like, okay, like I can breathe now. And after that meet, just being like congratulated by people who like I had looked up to in the sport and like getting to speak with people as if I were on their level, um, who I had previously just like looked at as being, you know, kind of larger than life. Yeah. That for me kind of established like, okay, there's a path here. There's, there's an opening for me. Um, and I think that from that point on, it was like, okay, you know, I'm going to take this really, really seriously. This is my, my priority outside of school. Um, and the great thing was that there were so many people at MIT at the time who also power lifted. Mm-hmm. Like we had a good group of us who were, um, <clears throat> who were pretty strong. We all lifted together and a couple of them had been in the game, you know, far longer than I had. Like there's one guy that I actually, he's my longest client at this point, uh, Frank Wu. He actually lives in New York city, mm-hmm. married, has a kid now, but he's in his, you know, he's in his mid thirties. And I think he had done like raw unity, like 2013, like he's oh, been around yeah. that. He's long. an OG. Yeah, exactly. He's an OG OG. Still has his Ray-Ban knee sleeves and everything. <laughs> I remember that time period. Yeah, that, that's that's amazing, man. And, you know, that, moving kind of into, um, you know, what I want to transition to next, because I think from that point on, the rest is history. People know your career and, and what you've accomplished uh, as a powerlifter. Now, at this point, while you're still a student at MIT, getting into powerlifting, building your name <laughs> and doing these meets, um, when did you feel like, uh, A, med school is not for me anymore, and then B, I can make it as a coach, you know, I can make this a career because I know you kind of attribute your coaching career to have started while you were at MIT as a student mm-hmm. and starting to work with some of these fellow people. Uh, when, when did that kind of happen in, in, in the, in your career that I can be a coach and this is my bread, uh, like my moneymaker. So it happened very late and it didn't even happen in my academic career. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I was, uh, kind of like shadowing under my strength and conditioning coach that I had for baseball. His name's Billy Rom. And I remember being in high school at the time and he's like, you're going to be a great coach one day. And I scoffed at it because like at the time online coaching didn't exist. No. Right. Which is like probably the most lucrative way that you can do things unless you're like the fucking man, like you're like Eric Cressy yeah. or you're, you know, one of those guys who in person just has pro athletes, you know, yeah, cash cow clients. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so at the time, I'm like, are you fucking kidding? Like, I'm not going to be work, you know, and I didn't say this, but in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to be working at one of these fucking facilities because it's like the type of people who would do that were just like, you know, the washed up athletes who, you know, just started coaching the sport that they used to play because they mm. you know, kind of put all their eggs in one basket and, you know, they didn't have a, a backup after their their athletic career. So at the time I was like, no, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. But, you know, I guess he saw something in terms of, attention to detail, ability to, to coach things and verbalize things. So I had gotten a, a pretty strong base of like general strength and conditioning uh, experience from him. Mm-hmm. Then transition to college, I started coaching people pretty early on for free. Uh, eventually got to the point where people were like, okay, like I feel obligated to pay you. Like you've coached me into meets. I'm satisfied with my results. I feel like I owe you for your time. And then obviously, as I made my way through college, I became, you know, more established. I'm sure, you know, you, you remember, you know, uh, like collegiate nationals where I had lifters like, you know, Mason Cabney, for example, competing, you know, I had noteworthy lifters all throughout college, but it was something that I saw as being secondary to one day, some sort of normal career. And I, yeah. and I saw it as like a side thing. 
Um, and this was just like a passion project that I would just coach a, a, mod, a modest roster of lifters for, you know, the entirety of my academic career. And then after that, you know, depending on what my job ended up being, that would determine whether or not I have to, you know, skim from some of my roster. And I remember talking to one of your old coaches, Hanny, mm-hmm. and I remember Hanny being like, this is going to become a full-time thing for you, whether you see it now or not, like this is going to become full-time and, and similar experience to when I spoke to my old coach, Billy, I kind of laughed at it. I was like, I don't know about that. And Hanny had a very similar background because he was a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. and he ended up leaving that field entirely and became a full-time coach, obviously coaching for TSA for, you know, six years, seven years now at this point. Um, and he kind of reiterated the same thing. So I was coaching all throughout college. I graduate. I end up taking a job doing gene therapy research mm-hmm. at the NIH. I remember that. For a, it was a post-bac program that I got accepted into. I was doing gene therapy research, and that would serve as my gap year while I studied for the MCAT and applied to medical school. Um, at that time, I was coaching the same roster that I was coaching while I was in college. But then obviously, instead of a course load, I was in lab. And, you know, I was traveling very frequently to handle people at big meets. You know, this was like the year and, you know, two year and two years before, um, you know, COVID where, you know, just lots of big meets would happen all the time. The Arnold was big. Nationals was big. CNATS was big. You know, all these meets that I had incentive to travel for because I had a lot of lifters doing it. And, you know, that was what took up a lot of my my mental energy since lab work was pretty uninspiring, pretty mm-hmm. just formulaic, right? I wasn't really doing a lot of thinking. It was just a lot of doing. So I had a lot of time to really, you know, dedicate to my coaching. And I just remember, you know, uh, listening to people in the lab talk about their shitty pay and how long they've been <laughs> there. And just like, you just look at these people. Maybe I'm being, I mean, I know I'm being judgmental right now, but like, I just look at these people and I'm like, you're out of shape. You're not happy. Like you just... You, I would, I would hate being you like, that's just how I felt. Like I would just hate being you in so many different aspects and granted, you know, I wasn't going to be a a PhD and just work in a lab my whole life. I wanted to go the MD route as well. Um, But like being surrounded by that all, all day was draining. And then, you know, just studying for the MCAT, like I was, I was doing very well on practice, practice exams, but that, that voice in my head that you kind of expect over the years of becoming adult an adult to just die down was doing the opposite and just getting louder. And I'm just like, I'm actively making myself make less money right now because I can't build a full roster out because of my workout obligations um, to then take on, you know, maybe not take on debt, but at the very least, be busy at the very worst or sorry, at the very best, be busy enough to not make any additional money. Yeah. Cause I'm just going through med school. I'm just like, why, why am I doing this? Mm. Um, so it really wasn't until, you know, 2019 that I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the NIH. Um, I'm going to go back to New York and well, this opens a whole, a whole nother can of worms, which is that I wanted to pursue acting and that's why yeah. I left the NIH because okay. I was going to continue coaching, but this is what I was going to pursue primarily. That was what I wanted to do with my life. That's mm-hmm. something I'd always wanted to do. I had done, I had done, you know, uh, I had acted while I was in college. I acted when I was growing up. Um, 
And that was, that was the voice in my head. I, from a, from a monetary standpoint, coaching was going to be the financial backing to all of it, but like the calling, so to speak was, was the acting side of things. I see that. And, and you know, I think that uh, for people listening, it's inspiring hearing that because I, I know your history, obviously having known you and followed you, but um, it didn't, uh, I guess it didn't really click for me that it took that long before you finally was like, this is my, this is my new path. Like I can commit to coaching. I don't have to pursue med school. And it didn't even happen until after you graduated and yep. it was already structurally uh, set on the path of taking them cat, you know, applying, trying to get into school that you yep. finally, um, you know, made that decision. And I think that's that hard turning point. A lot of people have to have in their lives of, you know, really reflecting and asking themselves, is this the path I want to see myself yep. in? Is this the work I want to do? But I think, you know, it made me kind of think of a, a funny different scenario where if you were a little bit uh, less uh, IQ inclined or intelligent, I can see you being like a uh, high school passionate, you know, chemistry teacher, you know, Mr. Noriega teaching the kids and like a under privileged New York school, you know, and, and maybe doing that or something like that. But um, I'm, I'm glad that you, you at least maybe that work experience too at, at the, the um, health Institute kind of opened your eyes and said, I yeah. don't want to do this. Um, um, and I don't want to have to be, put myself in a situation where 10 years from now, you look back and regret the, the what could have been right yep. um, now in the future. Do you see yourself still trying to pursue acting in any capacity? Well, how do you feel about that now? So my, my, inherent passion for it has not changed. Um, I mean, the way that the way that things ended up playing out was that I applied to Strasburg, which is a method acting school in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I had applied beginning of 2020 and COVID happened. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had applied, you know, um, and essentially the way that they they come back is that, OK, schools shut down for the entire year because of COVID. Time passes okay, we're going to do a fall semester, but it's online and it costs the same. Like I'd be paying tuition and tuition is not cheap. It ended up being wow. like, it would have been like $20,000 for the year. Wow. Like it's, and I would have been paying for it, you know, you know, myself. Entirely. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm just like, I'm not doing acting online. That is the most ridiculous scam <laughs> I've ever heard in my entire life. Right. So it was, I'm so thankful that this happened because even though acting is something I've, I've always wanted to pursue, I wouldn't be able to talk to you on this podcast right now. I wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't have the team that we have. And it's because, you know, all my life I've always felt like I've, I've juggled so many things and it's been to my detriment or, you know, because it's, you know, it's been to my detriment because I just have never felt like unilaterally focused on one thing. And I remember when COVID happened, it's like, okay, I can't do this. I still have a, a ton of my lifters that are able to lift, whether it's private gyms or their home gyms or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, I've wanted to bring on a team and build out this team for so long. Now I have the perfect opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. And that catalyzed that, you know, obviously we fast forward two years now, we had the first round of coaches come on and you, Jaron and Serene. Uh, and then we just had Chance, Eric and Aiden, right? So it's like, there's so much that we've built and there's so much that is still to, you know, I think that, you know, we've discussed, it's like, there's so much stuff we want to do. And I just feel, I feel the momentum. I feel the pressure to do so. And, and, you know, there's as, like I said, as much as like acting is, is a passion of mine, I just think that it would completely derail mm -hmm. everything that we're doing. And it would, it wouldn't even be enjoyable because it would derail everything. Right. Like, let's say tomorrow I was like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to start 
uh, I'm going to apply to an agency. I'm going to go get these headshots. I'm going to start auditioning. I'm going to film all these tapes. It's like, I wouldn't be able to get back to as many clients. Uh, I wouldn't be able to travel to all of these meets. Like there's so much that I wouldn't be able to do. And it just would, I'm, I'm so attached to and happy with everything that we have that I just more than a want, it's just an, you know, more than a want, it's an obligation to just keep pushing forward and, and keep doing what we're doing. Um, so if, if, you know, if the future ever, and I, and I hate to say this because I'm very much a person who believes that you have to create the opportunities or at least yeah. see the window for it and then go through it. Um, but I guess like I would say is like, if I see a, a window of opportunity and, and want to pursue it and feel that it's, it's worth my time then I would, but I just, I guess simply put, or I guess playing the odds, I would say, no, it's probably not something that I'm going to do. Um, at this point, but I'm not, I'm totally, you know, I'm, a, I'm 100% okay with that, which maybe two years ago, I would have not been able to say that. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad that, uh, you've with, with the circumstances of, you know, the pandemic, all these things that happened, it kind of helped you, uh, finalize and really just take, take home. Like, this is what I want to do. And I'm glad that, yep. you know, it puts us into where we are today. Now, you know, that brings me to the question that, you know, you, uh, not only are you a committed coach with a pretty extensive roster, you've been a great competitor. Um, I know as a coach slash having been an athlete myself, it's no easy feat juggling, uh, you know, coaching many high level athletes that you have in your roster while having to be at that same meet with you having to compete at some point within that three to four day, you know, period as yeah. that nationals or whatever uh, <laughs> that big meet is now, uh, within these next, you know, five years, how does your uh, goals of, of what you want to accomplish as an athlete um, compare and contrast with the stress and responsibility of, you know, trying to also coach these people at that level? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you manage to juggle that? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. You know, I've been, I guess, um, you know, so I'll, I'll go back to the first time I had to encounter this. It was 2016 nationals. It was the first time that there was a prime time. And it was like the first year of me being like recognized as like an elite mm. lifter. Cause like we said earlier, like 2015, I think I placed either fifth or seventh in the open. Um, but was new to the scene. 2016 was the first year of like, okay, like Sean Noriega is like a real lifter in the 83s. Yeah. Right. And that was a year that I had a ton of people doing nationals. And I was also competing in prime time. And I remember I was handling lifters all day, the day that I competed. And I felt like dog shit when I actually yeah. got around to competing. <laughs> I would imagine. Right. So like that was me going to the extreme side of the, of the spectrum in terms of literally running around this massive Atlanta venue, you know, handling people and then, and then waiting till later on in the night to, to compete. Right. In recent years, um, I think I've been fortunate for the most part to have lifters who competed like several days prior to me. So like I had, mm -hmm. for example, like Matt Aramoni is probably one of the more high level lifters that I had had over the years, but him having competed at 59 or 66 when nationals had been, you know, over the course of a week kind of gave me a day or two in between, you know, handling and competing. And then I would have someone like Daniela who would compete after me. Right. This past year's nationals, obviously much smaller, but this coming year, I definitely have a lot more people, people more dispersed across weight classes. Um, and, you know, I, I to, to put it simply, like I, I'm going to need help. I'm going to need help because I acknowledge that if I want to do my best job coaching, I have to be there, number one. And if I want to do my best job competing, I can't be zapped by the time that I compete. 
right? Exactly. So I need, I just straight up need help in doing this. And, you know, I'm glad that we have a team of coaches because like just, More putting, you know, that. yeah, exactly. That's a big part of, you know, for growing a business and growing a team, I think that having that presence at big meets is part of it. You know, I think every year that people saw, you know, the TSA coaches all in their polos at meets and, you know, everyone knows that that's that group and you see which lifters they're handling. I think that that's helped to grow them over the years. And in the same way, I think the same, you know, although pretty much all of us are, you know, at capacity coaching wise, I just think in terms of reach, this will help as well. But then just having, like you said, more hands on deck helps with those situations where you need help handling people. Um, so I'm going to need that. You know, I, I definitely am going to call upon guys on the team for that help. I also will probably, you know, I have guys like that I coach, like Steven Singleton, for example, who's like fantastic meet day handler. He's been, you know, he's young, but he's very involved in the sport. Like there will probably be guys that I trust that I'll probably pay for the day to help handle people because like just. I can't, I can't be loading plates for days on end, right? I can yeah. call attempts and that's my job, right? So if I can get people that can help with the, the grunt work that are willing to be there, I can maximize the coaching side and the competitive side. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, like, um, if, if we could call it a shelf life, like, what do you see as the next, uh, maybe in your 20s, uh, the, the rest of your 20s, as your competitive career aspirations? Like, where, or like, obviously, I know you've wanted to, to you know, be the, able to say that you won your, your weight class. Uh, but besides that, and even if, let's say, that does hypothetically happen at some point, like, do you feel like that is what's going to, because uh, people say satisfaction and contentment kind of kills the competitiveness, right? Like uh, yeah. George St. Pierre, I recently heard a podcast where he used to be champion, but he was always saying like, you got to stay hungry, even if you're champ. Um, now, do you see your, do you see that possibly happening for yourself? Like, wh- what do you see for these next five years of your competitive career? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You know, obviously with where I'm at right now, I'm not satisfied at all, right? Like I've had years of being number two at this point. I've had bursts of momentum. I've had injuries knocking me down. You know, I'm on the upswing right now. And, you know, if, if all things follow as they have in previous years, there'll be another downswing kind of thing. So, you know, that's, I hope not as well, you know, knock on wood. Um, but no, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm not satisfied with where I am. You know, I want to win the 83s or 82 and a halfs, we'll call them now. Um, you know, that's the, that's the most immediate goal as a competitor. The second one would be to move up to the nineties and win that as well. Um, you know, I've been in this weight range since I was 17, 16, 17 years old. Um, I suspect that if I were to move up that I would probably get significantly stronger without, you know, uh, a gross change in, in body composition. Like if the class was still 93, I wouldn't consider moving up just because me being over 200 pounds just sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, 90 is a, is a good place to be. Um, you know, I think I would be equally, if not more competitive moving up. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to say, cause like, obviously right now my mindset is like, I'm going to do this until I get it. I can't predict the future. I very much believe I'm capable, you know, of, of, of winning, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's obviously a huge obstacle in the way. There's a lot that I need to do right in order for that to happen. But I I do see the the potential for it. I see the momentum. Um, But I mean, you know, five years down the road, right? I might have, you know, uh, you know, lifters that demand, 
you know, significantly more time where I might be in a position to have to prioritize that. Um, I don't see that as the main thing, but potentially, you know, like obviously, you know, getting married, starting a family, stuff like that. Like that's also on that, in that, in that time, you know, horizon, right. The next five years kind of thing. So, um, Danielle is curiously listening in to this portion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, that's the, that's the priority. Like I've talked about this, you know, when in the immediate future, you know, my focus is, is my, my competition, my, you know, my coaching, like building the team, building the brand, but like everything that I do on, on the side of like work is for the sake of, of being able to enjoy the fruits of the labor with, you know, family and kids and stuff like that. Like that's the goal, right? That's the, the ultimate, you know, destination kind of thing. It's not this stuff. Like this is, this is me maximizing the gifts that I have at this point in my life. But, you know, if there's anything that I could enjoy, if I was told at any age, you, you, you know, pick one thing that you, only one thing that you can enjoy, it would be the, you know, the time with family and, and a wife and kids and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, right. But I'd imagine that, you know, that's, if that is what is presented that many years down the road, then that's, what's going to take precedent over, you know, whatever is going on right now. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, um, reasonable, wholesome kind of answer to hear from you, right? And, and I think most people, they see the value of, you know, having family, you know, and, and you having been in a family where you felt like your experience was positive and you've kind of been able to receive all that. I think <clears throat> seeing you one day as in a role of, of a father figure to your hypothetical son or daughter, I can see you passing on that and giving giving them those opportunities as well. Now, my, my last question kind of on that topic and, you know, as we close for, for the day, especially since we gotten to, to hear a lot about, you know, your life. And, and I, once again, thank you for, for sharing all this. If, if over this next three to five year timeline, um, it came down to it where, you know, whether it was someone like Russell Orhe or one of these other, you know, prevalent lifters in your weight class, like, let's say um, it's a year where they're not competing or they chose to leave the sport or, you know, pursue other things. Do you feel like that would take away from that accomplishment of you hypothetically winning that year and make you kind of feel like, oh, well, you know, I won, but I don't, I'm because there are other, you know, 82 and a half lifters right now, uh, equally uh, aside from you and Russ that are very high level and, and, and prominent and really up and coming to give you guys a run for your own money. Right. Um, do you feel like that would take away from your experience of winning if that was the case? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the right answer that I'm supposed to give here is like, no, because I went through all the personal <laughs> development and I climbed all the obstacles and I still hit this total, which means that I maximized all the, re- yeah. you know, whatever, but like it would, you know, it would be like if, you know, I, let me think of some, some corny analogy to, to go along with this, but it's like, it would, it would kind of be like if you were, you know, locked outside of your house and you're like trying to break down the door and you like, you finally knock it down after like separating your clavicle. And then you found out the key was under the doormat uh, the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, I don't know. It would just feel like not that the work was for nothing, but like, you know, it, I think the, it gets closure maybe. Yeah, exactly. It just, it feels like there's some sort of closure and like resolution to that, that, that effort, that period of your life. Um, you know, I like, you know, guys like Russ, obviously, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do. 
He has a lot of stuff that he wants to accomplish, obviously with his like social media presence and stuff, like mm -hmm. a lot of his decisions are going to be dictated by, by that. And like I said, same thing with me, you know, in terms of like, you know, competitive aspirations with this weight class or maybe the next one up and then what else comes, you know, later on in life. But yeah, I don't know. I, I probably looking in the next couple of years, I feel like that would need to, um, you know, that's what would really bring the the closure, the feeling of satisfaction, like this year or the next mm -hmm. year kind of thing. But it's like if someone leaves the sport, like Gibbs, for example, like Brett Gibbs, yeah. you know, kind of left, right? Like a couple of years ago, it's like, you know, you, you come to terms with the fact that he's gone, right? Like he totaled 830 and a half, like it's still the second best total in the 83s ever, yeah. but it's like, you know, he's gone. There's nothing you could do, right? Like it doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't bother me that I never got to compete against, you know, Brett kind of thing. Yeah, but at least with uh, Russ, it's kind of like the every you know Goku needs a Vegeta, every every main character needs their you know kind of rival, and and not a negative way. It's like someone to yeah. push each other to be the best version of themselves. And when you get the opportunity to say that you know you overcame that rival, I think it's uh, a wonderful feeling, obviously. And, and you know, for me as an onlooker, uh, as a friend, it's like I, I do uh, hope to see maybe ten years from now. Sean has that little kid on the way. You know, Sean has that closure. Um, you know, we're all sitting down maybe grabbing a meal with someone like Russ and and just kind of thinking about wow look at the legacy you two have been able to create in that weight class throughout those shining years and and something that uh probably will be hard to replicate uh and in you know other weight classes now like I'm sure there are those battles and, and close matches we can talk about but definitely you two have have that uh, uh the one people are you know sitting with their popcorn at and Asheville is just watching front row like super excited to see like what happens and, and yeah. you know for for the sake of uh, all of that I, I you know, I'm excited to see what, what happens in Vegas uh, for this year and then, you know, the coming years for it. But, yeah. but um, other than that, I mean, uh, th thanks as always for sharing, Sean, uh, uh, your, your hard work and, and you know, just your, your charisma on our team uh, to, to be uh, that leader figure. I think we all appreciate what you do for us, you know, the, the environment you've created for us. And we're always looking forward to hearing more about uh, your future endeavors. So any, any uh, other really? yeah, closing comments for everybody uh, before we wrap this up? No, I really appreciate, you know, not just your kind words now, but like all throughout the the podcast, I have to say, and I'm not biased because this is our podcast, but I think this mm. is probably the best podcast I've done. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. To your, to your interviewing skills and the, and the research and, and the direction that you took this in, you know, I've really enjoyed being able to talk about not my bench arch. <laughs> no, but for real, like I, I've really enjoyed the, the topics of conversation. Um, and just being able, like, it's one of, it's really refreshing when you're, you're going through a podcast like we have, and you're making me reflect on like really notable life experiences that I haven't reflected on, or maybe I, you know, not necessarily take for granted, but they kind of get just buried in, in the depths yeah. of your mind. So they never come out as much. And you're like, wow, that was actually really cool. Or wow, I'm really grateful that that happened and things turned out this way. So uh, I really appreciate that. And, you know, to your point about Vegas, you know, a part of me that, uh, you know, the, the acting part of me, the, the entertainment side of me, like I, you know, like you said, I think that this, this matchup, for example, is something that draws a lot of people and inspires a lot of people. And like, mm. you know, this past year obviously was, was upsetting because I got hurt, but then also it's upsetting in that it, it kind of, you know, destroys that, that, uh, that perception of, of, rivalry for people who are watching yeah. or you know maybe makes it feel like it doesn't have resolution um 
you know, so things are going really well right now. And, and I just hope that, uh, you know, well, not hope I'm going to do everything that I can to, to stay healthy. You know, I know what I need to do compared to previous years, just stay, you know, level headed, even keel, not get too high strung going into these big competitions. And I think that, you know, we'll be in a good spot. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see you whenever I see you next, which will probably be in, what is this now? Seven, eight weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably, uh, uh, yeah, around that time. So we'll get another chance to eat some good food as always. Yes, uh, I, I love uh, getting to always meet up with Sean because uh, he's always got the, uh, he's already planned out, you know, what the, the hot spot to, to eat at the local spot we're at is. So yeah, looking forward to um, all the hard work we're, we're going to put in for the team and, and, you know, all the lifters moving forward for this year and let's uh, kick off the rest of 2022 with uh, positive vibes and, you know, high energy. So thanks again, yes, Sean, for joining me today. And, uh, and uh, th thanks for all of you guys listening and be on the lookout for our next episode soon on.